Good afternoon. I'm Shelby Herbert, and welcome to Midday Magazine for Monday, January 30th. After two weeks of staying at the dock in protest, Kodiak's Tanner Crab Fleet is finally going fishing. Crabbers agreed to a price with the island's processors on Saturday. Kodiak's Kristen Dobrith reports. Each of Kodiak's four canneries offered slightly different deals. Alaska Pacific Seafoods agreed to $3.35 per pound plus a retro payment, which can boost the final payout to fishermen after the season. Pacific Seafood offered something similar. OBI came up to $3.25 per pound plus a profit-sharing agreement. Trident Seafoods stayed at a flat rate of $3.25 per pound. It wasn't exactly the deal Kodiak crabbers were hoping for, but ultimately 80% of those in attendance at Saturday's meeting agreed. It was time to go fishing. Kevin Abina is the secretary and treasurer for the Kodiak Crab Alliance Cooperative, which represents the fisheries permit holders. We stuck together. We're going to roll this thing out together, and uh, we're looking at it as uh, as a victory. Crabbers were initially offered $2.50 per pound ahead of the season. And at one point, nearly 200 vessels up and down the Aleutian chain said they weren't going fishing unless they were offered a better price. Crabbers in Chignik and the South Peninsula started fishing last week after coming to an agreement with canneries in King Cove. But as of Friday, 130 vessels from Kodiak still weren't fishing. Alaska's Department of Fish and Game also confirmed it hadn't received any harvest reports or landings in that time. It's important for these processors to know that we can stick together and, um, and organize and, and get a more fair deal. With a deal in place, crabbers will now set their gear at noon on Monday for the start of Kodiak's tanner crab season. And fishing can go fast in Kodiak's tanner crab fishery. Last year, the fishery closed after just about a week. This year's quota is much larger. Abina says they're expecting a bottleneck at local canneries, and some vessels might be stuck waiting to unload their harvest. But despite all that, he says the fleet is more than ready. For a fisherman, he's worried about when he's going fishing and how long he's going to be out fishing. Now we have the first piece of that puzzle. We have, have the when we're leaving, and, uh, and that's huge. Abina is also the skipper of the fishing vessel Big Blue. He says after the last two weeks, he'll feel a sense of relief when he pulls out of the harbor. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. Alaska's Game Management Board has authorized an elk hunt on Zarembo Island in southeast Alaska for the first time in nearly two decades. Sage Smiley reports, The State Department of Fish and Game opposed the hunt, but strong support from Wrangell and other communities helped convince the board to take the leap. Elk are not indigenous to the Alexander Archipelago in southeast Alaska. They were introduced to Adelan Island in the mid-1980s and spread to other islands nearby. That includes Zarembo, which is about 10 miles across the Zamovia Strait and visible from downtown Wrangell. But the Alaska Department of Fish and Game has shut down elk hunting on Zarembo for the past 17 years, concerned about low population. Chris Guggenbickler is the chair of Wrangell's Fish and Game Advisory Committee. He says locals have kept the flame for a Zarembo elk hunt. Elk is always something that we're talking about. There's so many people that have talked to us about the abundance of elk on Zarembo and the fact that they want to have a hunt again. Guggenbickler says Wrangell's advisory committee intended to propose a hunt last year but ran out of time. This year, he took it upon himself to write a proposal. Wrangell electrician and fellow AC member Jordan Buness signed on. 
in the final hour, I kind of drafted that thing up on my way out fishing, and I called Jordan. I was like, you want to co-sign on to this thing? And so he did. So we got it in, the, in front of everybody. Guga Mickler says getting approval for the elk hunt felt like an uphill battle because Fish and Game actively opposed the proposal. But Rangel and Petersburg's advisory committees supported the move. There's some question as to what the Zarembo Island elk population is. Hunters and fishermen say it's probably higher than 50 animals. Fish and Game says it's at 50 or lower. Biologist Frank Robbins, who oversees the area around Petersburg and Wrangell, told Board of Game members at their January meeting in Ketchikan he's seen at most 23 elk on Zarembo Island. He says the current population is around 50, although that's just an estimation because elk are hard to spot on the island. There's no available data to suggest that the Zarembo Island elk population has increased since elk hunting ended in 2006. Advisory Committee member Guggenbickler doesn't think Fish and Game's population estimate is correct. The number hasn't changed much since the hunt closed. The last hunt was in 2006. There was six bulls taken. They closed the hunt thinking that there really wasn't a lot of bulls left on the island. And then it, the proposal came off of the books, and it's been 17 years since we've had a hunt. So they've had that long to rebuild. There's already a federal subsistence elk hunt in the area, but it excludes Zarembo. The Board of Game rejected three other elk hunt proposals, but they unanimously supported Guggenbickler's at their January meeting. Hunters from around the region wrote letters and spoke to the board about how they've seen increasing numbers of elk on Zarembo Island. And Guggenbickler says he believes the strong show of public support for the proposal helped swing the board's favor. Guggenbickler says he told the board deer are also important to wrangle. Hunting elk could reduce the deer's competition for food. A research project in the 90s found significant overlap in the diets of elk and deer, especially when resources are strained after a heavy snow. I mean, it's a huge subsistence food for the community. We learned that there's a 60% overlap in what the elk eat and what the deer eat because the elk are predominantly on the beach. It was, um, we were worried that if there was a hard winter, the deer were going to end up on the beach. The elk would have ate all the food. The deer would have been compromised. The newly approved elk hunt will take place in October. Hunters will apply for one of up to 25 tags to take one bull. But Guggenbickler expects the department to be cautious, at least for now, in how they issue tags. Because of the road system and the accessibility on Zarembo, the department is going to be conservative because they feel there's going to be a higher success rate. Edlin has a very low success rate. There are actually quite a few tags that go out, but the success rate's only 2 or 3%. So... Um, I think they anticipate that Zerumbo will have a higher success rate and and they're going to be conservative in how they issue tags until they have a better idea of the abundance on the island. For now, they're just glad it passed. Elk are kind of one of those species we don't get a shot at much around here and, and there's some huge animals and I think everybody's just hoping they might draw that tag and kill that great big bull. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. Alaska's hunt draw Alaska's draw hunts open in November. If the new Zarembo elk hunt makes it on the official regulation books in time, hunters may be able to submit their names for an elk tag on Zarembo this fall, the first season in October of 2024. 
The upper mountain at Eagle Crest Ski Area was closed on Friday following a large avalanche Thursday. No one was hurt, but the area above the Hooter Lift will remain closed as the ski patrol works to address potential hazards. The slide dropped about six to seven feet of snow over a hundred yard swath in the East Bowl chutes. It's very rare, actually, that we have this size of an avalanche occur um, in a closed area within our boundary. That's Dave Scanlon, Eagle Crest's general manager. He says many of the mountain's steeper slopes have been closed due to concern about avalanches, including the area where this recent slide occurred. The avalanche was not human-caused, but authorities were called in to survey the area just in case. We didn't see any evidence of skiers coming in and out, but it's a great training opportunity and kind of a standard protocol within the ski industry. If we see something that happens like this, that you go through all of these motions just to ensure that the scene is clear of any, uh, of any patrons. Since the avalanche, Ski Patrol has been out on the mountain examining snow layers and deploying avalanche explosives to release some of the tension in the snowpack. A week of active weather set the stage for the slide. Heavy snow, followed by several days of warmer, wetter weather last week, added a significant weight to the existing snowpack and weakened the bond between snow layers. But Scanlon says it's not just this week. Frequent fluctuations between warm, rainy weather and colder, snowy weather this winter have created a relatively weak snowpack across the region. All the avalanche professionals are talking about this, which is a little more uncommon. Usually our coastal snowpack is more consistent with less defined layers in it. Colder temperatures last weekend will help uh, helped restabilize the snowpack and lower the avalanche risk. Stedman Elementary School in Petersburg is teaching kids about how to save for long-term rewards in the classroom. Kids can earn stickers or fake money, which they can spend on different prizes. One of the big-ticket popular items is a tea party with their principal, Heather Kahn. KFSK's Rachel Cassandra joined a Principal Kahn tea party and has more about what kids are learning by saving up. Principal Heather Kahn is setting up her tea table during lunchtime. Her office is decorated with notes and drawings from students. She puts out thin bone china cups and a teapot. She's serving hot chocolate today with heaps of marshmallows because she says that's what kids actually want at a tea party. Two first graders come in, Gavin and Rory, toting lunch boxes. Excellent. What do we got in our lunches today? They sit down in the kid-sized chairs. They got hot chocolate, but Con pours herself an elderberry tea to boost her immune system during flu season. Don't forget to put some marshmallows in there. In first grade, the classrooms use stickers as rewards. Gavin and Rory had to save up for this tea party. But how do you get a sticker? By doing it, thanks for being good. What was something that you did? I did the lessons quickly. Ooh, so he followed directions quickly. That's one of the golden rules of the classrooms, huh? 
Mary Midkiff teaches third grade at the elementary school. She uses laminated paper coins in her classroom. I tend to pass it out if they're following directions, if they're ready on time, if they take a risk, if they try something new, if they bring their homework in. Midkiff has heard from families that kids are excited about saving up their pretend money. Every time the parent was like, oh, I've heard all about it. They've been talking nonstop. They can't wait. And so that's always really positive. You figure when they're going home excited about it, you're doing something right. Some parents have asked her whether the money system is too much like bribery. But Midkiff says it might be good training for their futures. It's sort of how the adult world works. Like, we do things we enjoy, but we also get a reward for them. We get paid for our jobs, you know, that sort of thing. The kids also develop different styles of saving and spending and learn from each other. Sometimes you get a child who just wants to save it up all year. And then the last week of school, they're like, how many things can I buy this week? Becky Martin is also a third grade teacher at Stedman Elementary. She was the first to come up with the idea. What gave me the idea is I watched a little boy counting his stickers one day and I thought, you know, he's spending a lot of time counting stickers. I wonder if I can turn this into a more academic endeavor. So she decided to try using fake money as a reward system. With that same student, Martin saw that there was a lot kids could learn about real currency not just using stickers or points. When I first used the coins, I traded him five pennies for a nickel, and he got quite upset. And I realized he doesn't realize that the five pennies do equal the one nickel. The older classrooms use play money with real denominations. Kids trade in five pennies for a nickel, two nickels for a dime, and so on. Midkiff turned this task into a job for her classroom. A couple kids, it's their job to be the bankers. It does rotate, and I actually pay them for their classroom jobs, so they get a quarter at the end of the cycle, and then they can apply for another classroom job, so that's another way that they earn money. Kids save up until they get the ultimate jackpot, a photocopied dollar bill. They can pick from small toy animals to keep at their desk or food-shaped erasers, but Martin says objects aren't the most sought-after rewards. Although a few go into the treasure chest and get an object... The really popular ones are having tea with Mrs. Khan, helping in the library, having a special privilege. Some other special privileges are sitting in a spinning chair during class or bringing your pet to visit the class. Back in her office, Principal Khan starts to wrap up the tea party. Okay, it's like the plate now. There you go. But, but I always spill a little bit on the plate. The plate's great to spill on. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye. In their classrooms, Rory and Gavin can earn more stickers to save up for their next tea party. In Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.